Okay, guys, that was the uh, three songs back-to-back. First one was A-Pink's Love. Second one was Chris Wu, Time Boils the Rain. And then the last one was Jay Chow, uh, time, uh, what was it? Give, give Me One More Song's Time. So uh, Robin actually had to step out for a bit, but uh, Rohit's still here. What do you think, bud? Uh, what, what do you want me to, to say, like, about like, just the songs in general or which one's my favorite? Yeah, or? man, uh, out of the three that you listened to today, well, which one would you say was your favorite? 
I'll actually say the last one, the Jay Chow one. I I kind of dug it. I mean, it kind of had that like similar sound of what. Maybe it's because it sounds similar to some of the R and B I've heard. Uh huh. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, you know, in uh in American music, whatever. But yeah, seem it just that's the one that got to me again. Like. Uh, yeah. They all were pretty good. I mean, the first one was very upbeat. Uh, we saw the music video, and of course, the women, the women oh, yeah. were gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh-huh. But that's to be expected. <laughs> yeah, expected. Um, yeah. And uh, the second one, I, I'm just not the biggest fan of power ballads. I'm just gonna be real. Like, I'm, I'm not like. It's something where it, it maybe in the right context, right situation. But in general, I don't listen to power ballads or stadium ballads, as you said. Uh, <laughs> in, in I just don't listen to that on the regular. It's not okay. my thing. I chill to. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I always think they're kind of melodramatic, kind of <laughs> too okay. much. Yeah. So um, okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, for that's me, how I'd rank it. You know, I, I feel you on that one personally because, like, you know, I'm such a big fan of R and B, so I honestly don't mind it. But um, yeah, actually, interesting thing is that a lot of people may not know is that uh, Rohit is actually a rapper and a performer as well. Oh, don't give me rapper. I'm a beatboxer. <laughs> You're I'm a beatboxer, okay. But yeah. I do perform with rappers. Okay, yes. so there we go then. So yeah, so uh, uh, this is something interesting then. So if you had a chance to work with any of these uh, these three artists that we listen to today, like if you had the chance, which one would you jump on right away? Like, you know. So you've mentioned that the... the se- Who's the second uh, artist that we played? The uh, Chris Wu. Chris Wu. Chris Wu was uh, formerly a rapper. Yes, he was. Yeah. It'd be interesting to work with him since he was formerly a rapper and he can rap in Chinese and Korean. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that's pretty cool. Being able to rap in two languages. Uh, yeah. That's that's pretty cool. So it'd be cool to like work with him and see if in one track he can go through those two languages. If he, if he speaks English too, which yes, some... he, he's actually Canadian. Oh snap! <laughs> so there you go. You could have that would be ultra cool to work with trilingual, a guy trilingual who could do rap. like yeah three languages in one track. That'd be so cool. Yeah, I'd I'd pick him then. All right, uh, and then maybe Jay Chow just because he seems like a cool cat too. Oh yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, interesting thing, he's actually getting married soon. Oh, uh, who Jay Chow? Jay Chow? Jay Chow? Oh. Yeah. Just, just oh, off the shucks. <laughs> just just uh, off the topic type thing. <laughs> anyway, yeah, um, I do apologize to the regular listeners of Arts Report. We've gone a little more overtime than we intended. Uh, Rohit's actually hosting that next, so I guess yeah. it's a good thing that he's in here right now. Yeah, but um, <laughs> why are you on? <laughs> nah, it's all good, man. Uh, so, uh, again, ap- uh, my apologies. So we're gonna end it off here, and then the song that we're gonna play it out with is our Canadian artist of the week. It's gonna be Toronto-based R&B singer Jordan. Lorenzo with the song Perfect Dream. So, uh, yeah, that's really it for today. If you have any requests for me and Michelle, send it to AsianWave101 at gmail.com. Same with any thoughts on today's news if you want to get a discussion going. If you want to get into contact with Michelle, you can email us all the same as well. Ask her a little more about herself. This is her first day after all. So, you know, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, congratulations. congratulations. Good job. Amazing first day, really, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, by the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that'll be it for this week's Asian Wave 101 from me, myself, and Michelle. Thank you all for joining us this afternoon. This has been Asian Wave 101, and we're going to see you all next week. Take care, everybody. Arts Report coming up next. Girl, do you want...
alone in my bed with you stuck in my head got me thinking about the days and everything that you said girl i'm so lost without you but i'm waiting on the day that you come back to me when you learn to see i was here all like you're a criminal even when the war is over basically and uh uh she she wanted to basically restore that um justice right the wrongs and uh she went on uh, a hunt for uh to track down the the 76 uh UBC students who were expelled and um she wanted to make sure that UBC gave them an honorary degree which is also a painful story she she had to deal with a lot of bureaucracy uh of course i mean we know that any university administration will have its bureaucratic nightmare but you would think that uh, UBC would have, uh, you know, followed through and given these honorary degrees decades ago. But actually, it was only upon he it was only when Mary Kitagawa heard about American universities doing it first, you know, uh, giving honorary degrees out to people that Japanese uh, Americans that were expelled during uh, World War Two that she was she realized, uh, you know, this could easily happen here. Let's let's make it happen. She contacted UBC and uh, first in 2008, and they initially denied that they, that, that students were expelled. And she had to say, "No, you're wrong. I'm <laughs> I'm with the community. I know their stories." And then eventually, she managed to get them to agree that they indeed expelled students. And then the UBC was like, "Okay, we'll set up a task force." The task force was not getting anything done, so she contacted the task force and like, oh, what's happened? Hasn't the UBC Senate set up a task force? That's what you told me last. And then they said, oh, uh, we've contacted people in the community. Turns out they didn't contact people in the community. It was only when Mary Kitagawa actually went to the media, went to Vancouver Sun, went to the UBC, the, the student newspaper here, mm -hmm. and went to other um, journals and uh, TV stations. Uh, it basically got the media to pressure UBC with the uh with the story that she had and um finally UBC kind of succumbed and in 2011 uh Stephen Toop when he took over uh as dean of uh in, of the UBC that's when finally this was about to happen um unfortunately uh i think three or four of the um the japanese canadians elderly japanese canadians uh, had died before they could get the degree, but in the end, uh, the rest, uh, the rest of them managed to get their honorary degree. And the look of joy in their faces in the photos that we saw was, it was, it seemed like it was, it was a priceless and very treasured moment for each and every one of them. So it was a very emotional story. I mean, I, I, I'll admit, I felt like crying. I mean, I was on the verge of tears, and many people were uh, crying when they when they heard the last bit of the story, which was just. Um, we saw this interview clip uh, of one of the Japanese Canadians that was expelled at that time and just her describing, you know, how they treated her father. It was just heart-wrenching. So I'm glad finally, though, UBC, after much pressure, uh, did the right thing. And uh, Mary Kitagawa, though, deserves all the, the recognition and all the respect uh, because she had the persistence and the patience to do it. Again, her story will also be put up on CITR.ca. Uh, both Logan and Mary's stories are really insp uh, inspiring, and I recommend people, uh, you know, hear them so you can kind of put things into perspective and realize there's people doing incredible things these days, and not everything in the world is uh, atrocious. <laughs> Definitely. It sounds like you, uh, you got some pretty important stories this week, and I'm Absolutely. really looking forward to hearing them online. 
uh, and I'll make sure you guys get to hear them. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. Uh, now, I, I also went out this week and I did um, a couple of interviews. One of them was with Nathan Schmidt, who is currently starring in Underneath the Lintel, a play at the um, at Pacific Theatre, which is on um, West 12th, just off Granville Street. And so here is the interview with Nathan Schmidt. <laughs> Last week, I sat down with Nathan Schmidt to talk about his latest performance, Underneath the Lintel, a collaboration between Rosebud Theatre and Pacific Theatre Company in Vancouver. Underneath the Lintel is uh, a story of this um, bookish, kind of dusty librarian in Hofdorp, Holland, who, uh, who uh, a book, he's, his job is to take care of the overnight slot and all the books that come in through there. And um, He's very particular. Uh, and a book gets returned uh, 113 years overdue, and then he uh, and it comes in through the overnight slot, which is just not good. It's against the rules. If you've got a book that's 113 years overdue, you go to the counter and you admit your lapse, you pay the fine. Uh, and so he goes on a, a journey to track down this person, whoever it was. And the the mystery gets deeper and deeper the farther in he 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 looks into who this person was. And he sounds like he's the the librarian that every child is afraid of at the library. <laughs> well, maybe, or... maybe I guess yeah. In terms of like the librarian, um, you know, I remember going to the library and having you know returning books, and I had them overdue, and you try and sneak them in through the overnight slot so you wouldn't get fined for it. And and uh, so he's just he's very particular. It's not it shouldn't be allowed. Books are important. But I think also part of his part of the librarian's story mostly is is a, is kind of the story of all of us of. Uh, stepping outside of what is our comfort zone um, and and realizing what sort of life lives on the other side that that the the world that we know or that we experience as comfortable uh, shifts as we step farther into what is uncomfortable and by the time we, we're at the end of our journey we look back and we go well I can't believe I was ever that comfortable what is what I have now is so much bigger and fuller I guess with every journey story the protagonist will come around and learn more about themselves. Than yeah. The mystery yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. I mean, yeah. it could be a pretty dull play if that didn't happen, <laughs> I suppose. Now, I don't know if it gives too much away. I think a lot is said in the title and there are, um, it, it heart, well, it evokes the story of the wandering Jew and that's something that comes into the play. Mm -hmm. Um, how, how does that, how does that come into play for you? Uh, for me in terms of my life or in terms of the play or, well, in terms of your character, the librarian. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the librarian, uh, he, he's starting to see parallels in his life uh, in regards to this, this person that he's following. And he's starting to recognize himself in it and see himself. And, and the moments when we all stand underneath the lintel or the, the place of safety or vulnerability. And we have a choice to kind of go back in the house or to step out into the world to take a risk, to take a chance. And uh, the times in life when uh, we've chosen safety, or as the librarian says at one point, he, he says something about, um, you know, I must have been standing in an ice bucket, blazing heart, cold feet, 
Mm. You know, um, there, there's this paradox happening in us where, where we feel called to do something else, but we choose the safety of the other direction. And, uh, and uh, it's significant when we do that. That's a, there's a lots of significance to these, to these choices, however they go. So, so I, I mean, I don't know if that really answers your question, but that's, you know, in terms of the lintel, it's really the turning point. I mean, when we stand underneath the lintel, there's, it's where we make the choice. And how about, speaking of comfort zones, how about for you then in your personal life? This is a, a solo show. Yeah. You know, this, yeah. Is that, is that a, uh, how does that come into play for you? How do you feel? Yeah, I mean, I think any time, <laughs> as I sit, go through these days of rehearsal, right, when you have eight hours and it's just you talking, you kind of get sick of hearing yourself. And, <laughs> and then you also think, man, there's nobody else going to be standing there in front. I look at the seats in the, in the house there and I just think, oh, it's going to, people are coming to see this. Like, people will come. And there's, there's risk in that. It's vulnerable. It's scary. Anything could happen. You know, the light bulb in the projector could blow out. The, I forget everything I ever have to say. Like, you know, and so we, so we stand in that place of vulnerability. But the, but the risk of it offers so much more, the sharing or the, the participation with people. With the crowd. Yeah, with, our, with the audience and with the patrons of this theater. So You've performed the play... It's you've taken it around a little bit. It's it's. Uh, I performed it in Rosebud uh, at Rosebud Theater in Alberta, which you're a long time. Yeah, of. yeah, yeah. I'm a I'm an acting company member there, and I did it. So that would have been uh, not last summer, but the summer before, I did it there. So it's it's kind of coming back to it. In some ways, it's like the journey of the librarian. It's <laughs> rediscovering everything. We had to go find all the props and everything. <laughs> like you know, you're going all around trying to find everything that you had before and try and remember what you did. And then, and then shift it for this audience and for this theater. Do you notice um, a difference with the audience in every space that you perform? Or? I mean, yeah. I mean, different audiences. I'm, I'm excited to see what, what the Vancouver audience makes of the show. I, you know, I got to understand what the Rosebud audience need, you know, was seeing after that summer. And, and uh, so I'm, I am excited to see what a, what a Vancouver audience makes of this show and, and this this guy that I've, I've come to really like, you know, and get to appreciate getting to play. What's the biggest challenge been for you? Uh, in the, in the re in the remounts, trying to kind of let myself rediscover the play, mm-hmm. um, not just to try and do it exactly as I did before. Um, you know, there's, there's usually a challenge in, in a, in a remount like this where you feel like, Oh, I'd like more time. I'd like more time to have it all ready to go. But I, th- I think that's also kind of standing underneath the lintel. I suppose if I was just allowed to prepare for as long as I wanted, I might never do the play. <laughs> so there's something about having to, you know, the opening night of it. Yeah. Um, Perpetually in, in dressing rehearsal. Or... Yeah, yeah. You just, you know, and I'm that kind of personality. I think, I think the more information I can gather and the, and the more I can know, the more able I'll be able to interact. Um, but it's actually not true i think at some point you just have to step out and do and that's where the learning happens mm-hmm. we've talked about a lot of the heavy themes with the play what about um what about the light then it's a very uh, fast-paced energetic yeah i mean play, yeah and he's he i think he's a delightful guy you know he's he's talking of you know he's he's kind of stepping outside of what he should probably be talking about sometimes he's, he's talking about his digestive problems and he's talking about going to other countries and how he doesn't like the food and and oh and and uh just his his uncomfortability is quite funny 
Like it's his, his, the fact that he is uncomfortable and how he talks about it. And what was I going to do? Spend all my money just to go to China? Why would I go to China? I don't like the food. I don't, uh, it's all scary, right? I, I went to Gouda once to see how they make the cheese. But that's it. He's never left Holland. He's just stayed in his library and go home and watch TV, drink his tea, go to bed, wake up, catch the bus. Like it's very routine. Um, and, uh, and so when he gets, you know, I mean, there's humor in lots of that. When people get forced outside of what's comfortable, it all gets kind of prickly and, and uh, itchy. And, you know, oh, I don't know how this fits. I don't know who to be. I don't know who I am. Is uh, personality-wise, is the librarian someone who you identify with or are able to really escape into? Yeah, oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he's like, um, I think he's me in, a, in lots of ways. I think I am inquisitive. I want to know more. I like the mystery of things. I want to find out how things tick. Um, but I, I do like to understand the world around me and, and what's expected and how it's going to go. I don't, I don't tend to like getting thrown for a loop too much. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't like a whole lot to be else. But I mean, as I've gone through life, I, I know more and more that those are the best moments. That's, those are the moments where we get taught when, we've, when we're kind of thrown into exile from our life in some way. Um, you know, that's where we develop as human beings and as, as people interacting with each other. We, we get wiser, we get more patient, we get, um, we get more assertive, you know? It's, it's those moments. It's not sitting at home on the couch watching your favorite television show that you really, you really change as a, as a person. What what can a Vancouver audience expect when they come out to see Under the Lintel, underneath the Lintel? Yeah, I'm, I I think the audience is going um, is going to get uh, an experience of an adventure. There's a mystery. Um, there's lots of humor and there's lots of heart uh, in this story. I think like all all good plays, those are the those are the things that you're going to find, and hopefully um, that the audience is going to see something of themselves, and they might go home. Um, sort of, uh, they might go home feeling like, I'm going to make this choice. I'm, I'm, I'm standing underneath the lintel right now, and I think I'm going to make the choice that's a bit more difficult. I'm going to choose the, choose the thing that makes me uncomfortable and see what comes, mm-hmm. see what adventure lies on the other side of it. Um, that would be a hope. Uh, but I, I mean, I just think it's a great, great time in the theater. And how about uh, to those who might not come out to live theater? What uh, what case can we make for for them to come out and enjoy? Oh show? man! Well, if you don't come to live theater, uh, um, I think the best thing about theater is that it's all just there for you that day. That that group of people in that room creates a unique experience. That um, that we're we're all standing on the tightrope tightrope together, and. Uh, and going through this experience together, it's communal and it's, um, and it's an adventure. You know, we, we, again, we'll learn something about ourselves in connection with other people. Great. Well, congratulations on the remount and uh, wish you success with the Vancouver Run. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Underneath the Lintel runs at Pacific Theatre on West 12th until the end of the month.
Some Birds Walk for the Hell of It is a book of poems by C.R. Avery, published by Anvil Press in Vancouver. And the book shares its name with a two-act razzmatazz opera of joy currently performed each Saturday at Joe's Cafe, each Saturday in January, uh, at Joe's Cafe on Commercial Drive. And we are joined on the line by C.R. Avery. C.R., are you there? I'm here. All right, thanks for uh, joining us. How's the, uh, how's the show been uh, received so far? Everyone hates it. Everyone hates it. Yeah, they're throwing garbage at me. What was that blues thing that you were playing before your intro? Um, well, it's just, uh, it's Elizabeth Cotton. She's a, an old blues uh, guitar player. I, she taught herself how to play guitar left-handed from an old banjo. And uh, beautiful ragtime. That's beautiful. Well, your, your show, um, you know, Some Birds Walk for the Hell of It, it has blues intro, it has... Um, you know, it is, of course, a razzmatazz opera. There's burlesque, uh, poetry, music, sing-along, mixed media, um, and all of this span that from... That just sounds like a bad university thesis for someone that couldn't cut touring. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, it's all those things, but it's just, it, at the end of the day, it's just, it's, it's just a great live show. And the truth is, if I was out there by myself, or if I was with a rock band or the string quartet or the Sojourners or Company B... Well, it doesn't matter. Like, people don't need to know that there's, like, movies playing and that there's, like, dancing. It's just, like, it's a fucking killer live show, man. Yeah. That, well, it, and it spawned from the Book of Poems. How did you... Uh... Well, it was just one of those things where, um, you know, I put out a book. And so the, so you have everything that you put out, you have to then tour. You have to, like, give it back to the people. And the, the idea of me standing behind a poet podium and reading a bunch of poems bored the shit out of me so it was just when i when i when i did the book launch we turned it into like a bit of a you know a show we had some dancers i had music behind the poems and it felt really good because i was i wasn't cr avery anymore i was playing all these characters and then the imperial picked up the show um like three weeks later and the next thing you know i'm booked in edmonton i'm booked in calgary we did an ontario tour and it's just kind of evolved into this, like, you know, rock and roll musical. You mentioned uh, last last April you performed at the Imperial on Maine. Um, but this time around you chose uh, the Billiard Hall at Joe's Cafe on Commercial Drive. No stage, you know, it's, it fit like sardines in there. Why Joe's Cafe? Well, it doesn't fit like sardines. Sardines is more sexual than sardines. No, it's just like, literally, there's like a giant, it's like, you know, it's more like a scene from The Shining. Like, he has a whole side room that no one knows about that holds 150 people that hasn't been used since the Fringe circuit when the Fringe used to be on Commercial Drive. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a checkered floor. It's high ceilings. It's gorgeous. And it's just, that room has been shut off. And it took a little convincing to let him give me the room, but it's prime real estate. That's Commercial Drive. Like, that's like... Two steps down from Havana, it's right, you know, right across from Granby Park. And he just literally gave me that room to transform into, you know, like the backdrops there. I brought in theater lights, theater sound. You know, I turned the back room into a dressing room for the girls. I mean, there's like, you know, nine clothes changes within the show. But it's badass. People walk into the cafe, which a lot of people didn't know was licensed. And then they make a, a left and they go in and there's like, you know, 150-seat theater just waiting for them. 
Are you more comfortable in a in a space like that, checkered floor, you know, seats, um, fold out chairs, and and everything, than than in a theater like like the Imperial or or like you would have seen on tour? Uh, it's not like that. Like uh, like the Imperial was a wonderful show, and I love the people there. Um, it was more, you know, last year I was in six different countries, and some of them, you know, twice. I, I spent seventy percent of last year on tour. And if I would have done the show at the Rio, which I love, again, um, it would have been a one-off. Like, that's a 500-seat theater. That would have been, like, one Saturday night, boom. But I just need to be, I need to be in one place for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that whole, that whole idea of, like, you know, Bill of Holiday in 1935 was, like, a supper club where you, you know, you play every Friday, Saturday. Um, but I can't be in a Tom Petty cover band or, you know, I just, I can't do a regular gig of bullshit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're doing this musical. Um, so just having it being 85 a night, that's it. That means, I mean, it's allowed me to stay in town for a whole month um, and do one night, and we sell out every night. And with it being 85 people, I can get off mic. Like, people are right there. And it feels like that beautiful, like, Steve Martin born standing up like it's just like it's special it's packed um and uh and it allows me to do every saturday instead of a one night only gig now talking about the the atmosphere in the room because it's so intimate um you you total you wholeheartedly encourage audience participation and and um and interaction how well it's crazy i didn't expect you know like it's an italian restaurant but it got very greek there when everyone started having a big orgy you know i was like whoa everyone put your clothes back on but i couldn't stop it you know it's just like all of a sudden everyone's having sex and it's like i must have missed that night i was it was was pretty hot you know yeah Uh, so that's i think i saw you between like three girls and like two two dudes there Uh, i think i come up said hey can i do an interview and you're like i'm busy right now um but yeah, it's pretty rock and roll. Definitely. Now, has have there been any uh, negative reactions with with people in the crowd? Um, Is it like heckling, wow, that's, heckling that's a great question. <laughs> Nothing. I mean, I, it's, I mean, we've only done two shows, and they've both been packed. I mean, my first night, um, just because it was my first time in that space, and I was dialing up the sound and all that, I just wanted to do it free. Just mm-hmm. as we figured everything out, um, and you know, when you do a free show, you get your buddies. You know, it feels like a Bukowski soundtrack. Like you know, when you say free, you know, uh, uh, you know, a certain genre of of a ragtag circus shows up. So it was very you know lively crowd, and they didn't know like maybe in the middle of a piece you don't go stand up and take a piss or order a beer. But I wouldn't say that's negative. It was just kind of a, a beautiful. It really felt. You know, like a, um, like just a, a community free show. But For, then the next night, you know, with with when it was on, um, no, I mean Jesus Christ! Like, there's a point when we do the last song, and you, it was like, uh, uh, I don't know, it felt like a Ben Crosby music. We had 85 people singing in harmony, mm-hmm. and like all it was was just we didn't even tell them to sing. It was, I mean, Jesus, I mean. Forget the negative thing. I mean, it is just a beautiful thing that just kind of fell upon. And, you know, let me tell you this. Like, with Joe, when I first went in there, he hasn't had shows in there in 20 years, really. And, I, you know, he doesn't know me from fucking, you know, I don't know, Edward Norton. He has no idea who I am 
or that I do shows or travel the world. And so I'm just like some guy coming in looking like a guy that sells pot in front of his place going, yeah, can I have your room for a month? And it was very hesitant. And I, you know, I brought the burlesque dancers by and we're like, come on, Joe, give us a spot. And after the first night, he cut out the ad from the Georgia Strait and pinned it to the door. <laughs> and you can't, you can't, I can't express how that made me feel and how they've just slowly, you know, taken us in and been really kind to us. It really is the melting of two very different generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's just great to see that place packed, you know, and, and uh, it, 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 it really reminds me of the old freight train land days. Well, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the burlesque dancing, and you mentioned the atmosphere of the room. Is there is there an etiquette to to being an audience member in in a in a intimate burlesque show? Is there any? All there is is you know when we toured it with Ontario, um, a lot of you know it was a lot of spoken word type people and promoters that were putting on the shows, and they just didn't know how to react mm-hmm. to dancing. Like uh, it's kind of like go- going to a comedy show. And forcing yourself not to laugh. Yeah. Like you, you can't make a comedy, um, uh, like in the studio CD. The, you know, the comedy CDs are live for a reason. The, co- the comedian goes blah 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 blah, laughter, and that's it. As a listener, you get half off of hearing the back and forth between the audience laughing and the comedian. And it's the same with burlesque, where the audience has to be alive. But we've addressed that from the beginning of the show. We're going to stand on our heads. We're going to give you everything I got. But you guys can't pretend you're in the library right now. Like, you guys have to be with us. Um, but I just, I have to be very specific. Like, Bob Dylan in press conferences says, I am not a folk singer. And I have to be very specific. And this is from the girls. This is not a burlesque show. This is not a variety show. You know, this is not like me hiring a comedian and then a couple of burlesque dancers. This is a scripted, you know, hour and a half musical. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and there's many numbers because these girls have a theater background, both Melody Mangler and um, Violet and Femme. Eva and Violet, Violet Femme. So, like, they literally, like, the first half, they don't even do burlesque, but they've done three different styles of dancing. It's just, you know, burlesque means you know making fun of sex mm-hmm. so it's you know it's, it's a comedy these girls are comedians you know like you know the first number they're janitors the second number they're doing that old school uh showgirl thing which is not burlesque they're doing like you know if you went to vegas or you went to cuba you know to see nat king cole sing these are what these girls are doing and then they're 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 nuns and then they're cops like you know there's no it's just the range, and then on top of that, they're singing part harmony. Yeah, it was just that they're willing to go a little more sexier, and and they're just they can do every style of dance, and plus they're both circusly trained. So in the sense of like doing handstands and doing twirls and and acrobats, they're on top of that. So it's just like people think, oh, is it a burlesque show in the back of the of Joe's? It's like yes and no. You know, it's like. If you think burlesque means Jelly Roll Morton and and uh, and Cabaret and uh, Liza Minnelli making out with Louis Armstrong, then yes. <laughs> but you know, we have to redefine what all these words mean. Tell me about just, uh, their, their talent has been blowing people away and the range of their talent. Tell me about your uh, the work you've done with Melody Mangler and and Violet Femme. 
How? Well, it's more like the work I've done also with Lola Frost, mm-hmm. or you know, with the with the burlesque troupe in Calgary. Um, it's more, and then you know, and Cherry on Top. It's just, uh, it's it's more that on the West Coast, you know, I came here as a blues musician, mm-hmm. and it was just like I couldn't get a damn gig, but there was spoken word, spoken word, spoken word. It's like, well, Jesus, fuck, I'll read some of my, my song lyrics at these stupid things. And then I was like, all of a sudden, oh, they're calling me a poet. But it was just like, there was more spoken word gigs than for me to play with, the, you know, play blues music. And then, of course, I got inspired with all these great spoken word poets that were in the scene. But, you know, that happened because I was on the West Coast of Canada. And another thing that is very West Coast, that is not the rest of Canada, is we have, like, the burlesque dancers here, are, are they're almost postmodern. Like, Jamie the Wolf come down, came down from Oakland to do some shows with us, and he's watching the girls at the Kiefer, and he's like, CR, you got to know <laughs> that, you know, like, the girls are not as good as this anywhere else. Like, they've really taken it. Like, I remember going to the Wise Hall to a burlesque show 10 years ago, and it was like someone stripping to a Rolling Stone song. <laughs> but now they've taken it to another level. Like, it really is an art form. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. You know, when I watch Lola Frost perform, she's more David Bowie than any goddamn fucking band at the peak right now. She is so rock and roll yeah. and 100% committed to, to her art form. It is like rip-roaring, I'm going to kick your door down. You know, Snoop Dogg is like bowing to her. Like, that's the level of this. And spoken word, like, it's crap. It's like, it's, you know, it's like people reciting, you know, mediocrity in, in a tone done a thousand times. But then in this city, some people have just taken it to this raw, beautiful level. So for me, it's like the West Coast has really made the show. I wouldn't be doing spoken word, and I wouldn't be working with burlesque dancers unless I live on the West Coast of Canada. Now, is one of the poems, and one that you mentioned, well, both in the book and, and comes up in the play, mentions Katie Lang and mentions the, the honesty that you feel from, that you get out of that. Is that, is that the same thing that you look for in, in all of these art forms, in burlesque, in spoken word, in, in blues, rock and roll? Listen, I'm just, when I, before you made the call and I was with my friends in the car, I was just talking about watching uh, the Zen of Tony Bennett. Mm. And I don't know who, he's talking to some jerk-off publicist or something, and and he's talking about Duke Ellington. And Duke Ellington was like, there is no jazz or pop music or blues or hip-hop or rock and roll. There's just good music and bad music. And that's why Miles Davis covered time after time. That's mm-hmm. why, you know, Jack White is covering Crazy by Niles Barkley. It doesn't exist. There's just like, you know, there's Hank Williams, there's Johnny Cash, there's Ice-T, there's Tony Bennett, there's Frank Sinatra, there's Ray, Ch- Ray Charles, modern sounds of country music. He's literally covering country songwriters with a big band. Yeah. I'm like, what genre is that? Yeah. You know? So as far as me being inspired, it's just I'm inspired by anything that's good. The greatest poet in the, this century is Muhammad Ali, who's a boxer. Hmm. Like, you know. Well, one of the one of the other lines that sticks out in this um, 
that well, and just and just to be respectful of that poem and Katie Lang. When you see Katie Lang play live, it, it's like you see the Beatles playing in Germany. You see, you go like, oh god damn! I'm like, I'm at you know Grand Ole Opry watching Hank Williams. You know, I'm in '56 watching Elvis. Like, I'm watching you know Ella Fitzgerald like tearing it up with Louis Armstrong. Like she's just, there's just some people that are just at this other level. Like she's incredible. And that's what that poem's about. Part of, uh, well, one thing that sort of ties to that, that one thing that stuck out for me, one phrase it was, uh, in, from, from the play was the Chuck close quote, which was inspiration is for amateurs and the rest of us just show up and get to work. Um, right. is, is that what, is that sort of a similar idea for you? Like, do, do you experience creative blocks? And if so, is this what gets you through it? Is is hard work? Well, my my sister brother, she lives in Australia, and she's a surgeon. So she cuts up children and tries to save their lives. And so I'm here in arty farty land, you know. And uh, my sister spent her whole life in school so she could save children's lives. And mm-hmm. literally, she like gets up at six and spends like 24 hours and like her whole life, and she loses six kids a day. But she also saves kids, you know, six kids a day, and her it's just life and death. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, so you're an artist, you know, like, but, you know, in the Bukowski frame of mind, you have to put the same amount of work as the person that is a surgeon. You yeah. know, it's not just hanging out in a cafe drinking coffee. It's the same. It's the same work. You know, you have to learn. All the formulas you gotta, you gotta, you know, you have to go out on tour for eight months and real, and then like have songs, you know, die and not work, and then find the ones that do and put it all together. Um, I guess it's just for me, um, yeah, that that line hit home where he was a guy that is in a wheelchair and is making art, and people are complaining about how the music industry has crashed. It's like. Jesus Christ, if you, you know, you listen to Miles Davis just play that trumpet and it's like, it's time to get to work, man. Yeah. Do you, um, one of the themes in the play... Uh, I'm, I Just so you know, I'm in a car with a bunch of corporate lawyers and they're playing with their penises right now. It's kind of freaking <laughs> out. And they're rubbing their bald heads while they do it. It's like, well, it's like, wax on, wax off, you know. It's the life of a poet. The life of a poet, you never know where you, what car you wind up in. Uh, one one of the themes of the play for that that I sort of picked up in was the state of the arts in Vancouver, and there is sort of a, a I don't know if, I don't know if I want to call it a, a nostalgia or not, but uh, at least commenting on um, you know the closing of certain like somewhere like the Waldorf or the Propos Cafe in Vancouver, and but and, you know like you know CBGBs used to be where where prostitutes and you can live for two hundred dollars. Yeah, you know it's like. Gentrification happens. Like you want to talk about the city, Kitsilano's where you used to score weed. You know, it's like you. It has a small window. Even mm-hmm. like I was reading an interview with John Stewart. He realized his his window is gonna, you know, dry up pretty soon. You know, um, and when you have that window, you take it. But you know, Austin, Texas, where the artists live, mm-hmm. is now condos. You know, Brooklyn, New York. They're getting so far pushing the Brooklyn. You know, it's like, there's practically not even New York anymore. Yeah. I mean, wherever, I was playing in Sydney a couple months ago, and it's like, it was in a big warehouse that was like 
the warehouse district of Sydney, but now is becoming the hip part. Um, it just it, for for music to be viable, you don't want to be paying great overhead. You want to be give, you know putting that money into the show, so it goes into the warehouse district, and where the artists are and where the immigrants are, and and then and then it becomes hip, and then blah blah blah. Um, so yeah, I'm not nostalgic at all, but it was more, uh, you know, it, it, it was just. When the Waldorf closed, I wrote a song. Mm-hmm. I came, you know, to sit in with Marie in the shower, and I brought the girls to Company B, and I just wrote a song for, like, we had a good run. Yeah. And it, it, was, it was like playing a funeral. And then that was it. Like, I just, that was, I didn't think any more of those lyrics. You know, I go every Monday and dance at Fox Cabaret, and, and, and that's that. But then I went to Ireland, and I heard the Dubliners sing this, this song called The Town I Love So Well. And they're talking about you know, the town that they grew up in and then, like, the bombs coming in. And it was just, like, it hit me, like, oh, it's all right to write a love letter to your city. Yeah. And I pulled back that, you know, brought that lyric back. Um, and, and say that again, brother. Uh, let's go over the bridge. Sorry, I'm doing two things at once. Uh, so, anyways, it, it just it just allowed me to... to to appreciate my town, listening to the Irish, of course, speak of so much love um, of of a community. And you, goddamn, when you feel it in Ireland, like that whole thing when young and old people are, are like, there's no, you know, babies allowed in bar. Like you know, it's just like everyone's in the bar. Yeah. You go to work and you come to the bar, and it's a beautiful thing. Well, thanks very much for taking the time. And with by us the way, just so you know, Joe's is also all ages. So that's a cool thing. So, you know, we've had a couple of, like, you know, 18 and 19-year-olds and then also, like, you know, old rock and rollers in their 80s there. It's a cool thing to be able to have an all-ages show. It's all-ages. It's also licensed, and they've also got billiards next door. Wow, they? No one knew that it was licensed. <laughs> well, CR, thanks very much for taking the time with us uh, for the Arts Report this uh, this evening. Sunbirds Walk for the Hell of It is on the next, uh, well, every Saturday in January at Joe's Cafe on Commercial Drive. And I think what we're going to do is, just because the show hasn't been selling out, we may the last weekend do Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Friday, oh, all three, all all weekend. Last weekend will be all weekend, and uh, we're actually going to film it because, it, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to tour this again, and uh, I just need some footage, so we're going to film the last Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Right on. Well, I I wholeheartedly encourage everyone to go down. I I had a good time a couple of weeks ago. Thank you, brother. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks very much. All right, play some Bob Dylan really fucking loud. Yeah, okay. Okay. That's Campus Radio. Boom. C.R. Avery in conversation about all birds, or pardon me, some birds walk for the hell of it, um, a book of poems and a live production um, currently playing every... Saturday in January at Joe's Cafe on Commercial Drive um, and all weekend for the final weekend in January. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us on the Arts Report this week. I'm Jake Costello, and um, you're tuned in to CITR 101.9 FM 
in Vancouver. Uh, just a couple minutes left, I'll give you a little bit of a heads up on what's going on in the city this week. Um, tomorrow at 6 p.m. at the Rio Theater, they're lighting up the Rio sign. Uh, it's been damaged, and it, uh, due to a, a crowdsource found uh, campaign, they have fixed the Rio sign, and they're lighting it up and giving out free popcorn tomorrow. 